Hi, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Numbers. This is the show where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director of valuation services at CFGI, where I help my clients with their most important accounting and finance needs. Today, we're going to be going behind the numbers with Frank Tate, who is a director and advisor with eLab, Executive Leaders for Advisory Boards. And Frank, you're going to be sharing uh, a breadth of knowledge and experience throughout your career. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Frank Tate. uh, I've been around the education and the technology world for over 30 years. Um, I've been part of uh, acquiring uh, 24 different companies. I've been part of three exits. Uh, the most recent of which the uh, PACT group uh, rated as deal of the year in 2018 uh, when we uh, exited as a unicorn. Uh, And I've been part of one IPO uh, when that company grew to be $550 million. So you've got a lot of transaction experience. Talk a little bit about what is eLab and just in, in full transparency, I'm also a member of eLab, but I'd like you to describe the organization and your role. Sure. Executive Leaders for Advisory Boards is a group of, uh, I call them senior experienced people in the Philadelphia area uh, that work to help Philadelphia-based businesses or Philadelphia region-based businesses in terms of uh, advisory boards and governing boards. Uh, as uh, I've been uh, part of the organization for about a year now, and I came to the organization through its founder, Candida Sisak, who I've known for about 20 years uh, from a prior organization, uh, uh, Greater Philadelphia Senior Executive Group. Right. So what's your role with eLab at this point? Uh, with eLab, I work with different la- uh, different sizes of companies. Uh, so, for example, I work with uh, private equity companies uh, to help them uh, understand a market, uh, identify it, uh, acquisition targets, and potential exit strategies. Uh, and then I work with smaller companies. I have uh, one company now that um, has gotten funding, and they're getting ready to uh, get, hit their growth stage and move to an A round of funding. And I also work with smaller companies that have gotten started uh, but are trying trying to get the funding to be able to take themselves uh, into scalability. Okay. Uh, where do you want to start? you want to start with small companies or large companies? Um, Let, let's, un- let's unpack the small company okay. si- situation first. When you're working with eLab or just throughout your career in general, Frank, what are some of the, the hot-button issues that you're seeing that small companies face on a regular basis? Well, I think the biggest challenge is focus. Um, uh, one of the things helping the CEOs understand that their most critical resource is their time. And so are they spending time on things that only they need to be able to do as a CEO? Uh, and so how do you scale up? How do you outsource? Uh, the second part is making sure that they have good, competent uh, advice. So the, the one thing I see as a pretty consistent challenge uh, is with legal counsel. You get what you pay for. Um, and a lot of cases, the legal counsel, uh, you want to have someone who is experienced in what you do. They do it for a living, uh, that you're not just, uh, you know, I call it the brother-in-law effect, where you have a brother-in-law who's a lawyer and they do the work for you, but they're not an expert in that area. And it creates friction, unnecessary friction for you down the road as you're growing, working with investors uh, who need things buttoned up and tight. So think about where you need to think about your next step and invest in those things for the next step, not for where you are today. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the brother-in-law effect. Um, usually that brother-in-law is a personal injury attorney. I've written about that. <laughs> Why Not your brother-in-law for, for an important yeah transactional type thing. Yeah. Uh, when you say that you get what you pay for, that really resonates with me. You know, in my valuation yeah. background, you know, value is, yeah. is different than cost. And the very first article I ever wrote was called The High Cost of Low Price. And it was opening the kimono, so to speak, on how 
people buy professional services. And uh, when you talk about getting the right attorney, yeah. any, any particular advisor, yeah. um, a lot of times they perceive everybody to be the same. If I got a recommendation from you know, my accountant, for example, and we're talking about, say, attorneys, well, they're all the same. My accountant recommended three of them, uh, but I'm going to go with the one that's the cheapest. How do you help leaders understand that there really is a distinction between price and value in, in selecting the right advisor? Uh, I'll, I'll say that I'll pick on legal counsel for right now because it scales across all layers of the uh, all layers of industry. Um, when I go to buy a business, I provide one piece of unsolicited advice, and that is get the most get get the best counsel you can afford, who is an expert in this area because it reduces the friction, it reduces the transactional friction. Um, I've been part of transactions where my counsel had to coach the other guys how to do it, uh, and it delayed things. Um, I've, uh, you talked about personal injury lawyers at one deal where the, uh, the CEO of the company we were buying was using his college roommate, um, who wasn't a personal injury lawyer, but he was not a mergers and acquisitions guy. And so how do you set up things and set your structure in place? So even things like with accounting, get your get your books set up correctly for how investors are going to want to look at your books. Um, QuickBooks is fine, but it's how you structure it. It's and it's getting those things set up at where it it's it's little cost to set it up, or maybe a little incremental cost to set up up front. But the cost of correct the cost of correct is higher later. Uh, one of the things in the technology world, you have a cost of correction curve. And so the sooner that you identify something and fix it, the lower cost it is. The later in the game you do it, the higher the cost. And particularly with business owners trying to sell their business, that friction depresses their price or increases their cost. At the end of the day, it's more mo- it's way more money out of their pocket when they fix it later than had they done it right in the first place. Yeah, no, no question. That's sage advice. I, I have mm-hmm. that conversation pretty much every week yeah. uh, with uh, prospective clients and active clients. Yeah. Uh, when you talked about the accounting books and how mm-hmm. investors want to look at them, talk a little bit more about that because I'm sure there's a lot of folks in the audience who really benefit from understanding what does that truly mean. Well, I think that one of the things that's clear and consistent is revenue recognition. Uh, what is a sale? So, uh, and that part of this gets into when you're doing, uh, you're merging companies together, you have different definitions for what triggers a sale. So is it a purchase order? Is it cash collected? Um, are you doing it as one-time revenue? Are you doing it as rateable revenue? I hate to go accounting on it. You know, you have the new 606 rules for how, uh, how things need to be accounted for if payment, if, uh, services are provided over time. And so it's understanding what those are and having your books set up because, and most of the deals that we did, we would take the company's books and then we'd have to completely restructure them to match how we do business. Um, and, and, re- and part of that gets into the diligence and the cleaner it is up front and the more in compliance with rules, the less there's opportunity for re, uh, recutting a deal because the revenue isn't what we thought it was or the cash flow isn't what we thought it was. Yeah, and don't want to take this down the accounting yeah. rabbit hole either, but just say that uh, those emerging issues in technical yeah. accounting that you just alluded to are things that my colleagues work on all day yeah. long. So uh, if anybody's interested, they can certainly reach out to me and I can yeah. help them connect on understanding what some of those things mean at a deeper level. Yeah. Um, Anything else with regards to small companies? We've got about five minutes to go in this first segment. The other part is getting the funding. And and so part of it is having the focus and figuring out what you do, how you're going to create value for your customers. So what problem do you solve? And so once you have that problem that you're solving, 
how are you solving that, understanding who your competitors are, and then understanding your value equation. Why are uh, companies or customers going to pay you for what you're providing? Uh, because that's crucial for investors to be able to understand that uh, because they want to see then, okay, if they're putting money in, how does it help you scale so that they're going to be able to see a return? And so to me, it's, get, it's, it's being clear about fewer things uh, because that's, how, that's what investors can see. Uh, if you can get the picture, get it into a picture and get it onto a page in terms of the life cycle of a customer and where your revenue model comes from, I've seen that to be much more successful in terms of getting uh, companies funded. Yeah, Frank, for folks watching and listening that want to learn more about you or how they can work with you, what's the best way to reach you? Well, you can reach me, out, uh, reach me through the eLab site, uh, Executive Leaders for Advisory Boards, um, or you can reach me on LinkedIn, I'm Frank Tate on LinkedIn. Um, I think I'm the only Frank Tate out there. Okay. Um, so, and yeah, and eLab's website is advisory-boards.org. Right. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, my pleasure. So let, let's unpack what you just spoke about briefly here in the, in the several minutes mm -hmm. that we have left. When you talk about articulating a strategy to an investor. So you've got to impart not only the strategy mm -hmm. and, and make it clear, but it's got to resonate with them that they can see those mm -hmm. synergies. Yep. How does someone do that effectively? Well, to me, uh, one of the things that always comes through is the passion. Um, you know, the, the, the CEO has passion for what they're doing. Uh, the second part is clearly understanding the customer's mindset. This is why the customer wants to buy. And then the third part is here's what the funding is going to go to and being able to articulate that this funding is going to either build a product or enable an expansion in a market area, but being able to and then having a metric that you can show that you've, you've accomplished what that funding is going to provide. And so being able to give the investor a sense of it's not just I'm going to put a pile of money in and hope something comes out in 12 months, but what are the incremental steps of where money is going to be provided and how return is going to be measured. So either it's in terms of new customers or revenue per customer um, or product completion and delivery, uh, but some way that the investors can see that they're actually getting the activity that they paid for uh, and then seeing how it's going to help drive the growth of the business. Yeah. One issue I'd love to touch on a little bit is about valuation. Um, it's something I know a, a little bit about um, to help pay the mortgage for Just me for quite bit. some time. Yeah. Uh, but in these circumstances around capital raises and where equity is involved, uh, a lot of times the, the folks who are giving up equity struggle with how to reconcile the valuation, you know, the implied price that's put on the business versus the long-term return that they're going to get and how they may grow that valuation down the road. How have you advised business owners in the past on how they can kind of bridge that mental gap? Uh, I think part of it is, uh, part of bridging the gap is actually laying out a three or a five-year plan. And so where are they going to be? What's their plan going to be um, based on uh, what they expect to achieve? You know, you always give the investor what you, you know, the minimum you, you think your growth is going to be. Uh, so basically, it's your worst case. Then you have your expected case and your best case. And so you need to look at where you are and say, okay, I'm giving up this percentage of ownership here, but if I'm able to achieve my growth at this value, at, you know, I'm valued at this amount here, if I'm able to achieve this kind of growth. So if I'm growing at greater than 20%, if I have EBITDA greater than 25%, um, if, my, if I have cash flow that's positive, then I'm going to get a higher multiple. So what multiple can I expect? And then just look at the valuation equation. So you can use the math to help them, yeah. uh, but it's what they believe is going to happen. 
And so have them understand that as they grow, as, as they grow in terms of revenue and as they grow in terms of profitability, there are multiple increases. And so it's really about their ability to execute. And that's part of the CEO coaching is having them stay focused on what they need to, uh, the critical things they need to achieve the growth and achieve the profitability. Yep, focus. Yeah. That's a great spot to take a, a commercial break here. So uh, for those back in the, uh, the production area, we're going to go to commercial now. And uh, for those watching and listening, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Frank Tate on Behind the Numbers. Okay. And easy to eat. Like wonderful pistachios without the shells. They're protein-powered, delicious, and great on the go. And that's perfect for me. Thanks, Liz. A woman without a lot of time. Whether you're a gourmet cook or just want to eat like one, visit Rostelli Market Fresh, your home for the freshest locally sourced ingredients to please everyone who loves great food. Our organic meats, quality seafood, and free-range poultry are cut fresh to order. Chefs create culinary-inspired prep foods made fresh every day, which pair nicely with our vast selection of fine wines and spirits. Choose from handmade pastas, artisan cheeses, organic produce, and grocery items, all from the finest purveyors. Rostelli Market Fresh, from our family to yours. RVN-TV is a platform for people of any industry to share their story. Over 285,000 viewers are tuning in to RVN-TV shows monthly. We guarantee a great experience that you'll be sharing with everyone you know while increasing your personal and company's brand awareness. But what is your brand? According to Forbes, it's a combination of your logo, your product, your design and feel, and your personality. Did you know that aside from being a guest, we offer even more opportunity to boost your brand? Adding your company logo and website on screen during your interview will allow viewers to recognize your brand instantly. Incorporating images and video clips is another great way to showcase your product during your live segment. Let viewers see how good you really are. And most importantly, there's you and your interview. For less than the cost of a newspaper, direct mail, or a magazine ad, you can leave our studio and within 48 hours have a permanent digital copy of your live segment to link to your social media, embed into your company website, or use in email marketing. Investing in your brand is so very important, and we can't wait to have you as a guest. Shelter dogs aren't broken. They've simply experienced more life if they were human, we would call them wise. They would be the ones with tales to tell and stories to write. The ones dealt a bad hand who responded with courage. Do not pity a shelter dog. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking with Frank Tate, uh, who is a director at eLab. Frank, in the first segment, shared a lot of great information. And one of the things I want to jump back to is exploring your background a little bit. You mentioned that you've been involved in a number of transactions, uh, acquisitions, several exits, and an IPO. And you also mentioned something about the, the transaction of the year in 2018. Um, what, if anything, are you allowed to share about that? I'd like you to humble brag just a little bit about sure. that. Well, the, uh, the company I was with, I, I was a part of the uh, executive committee, and I ran mergers and acquisitions for Frontline Education. Uh, we had been growing organically about 20% a year, inorganically another 20% a year at 30% EBITDA. 
Um, we, the company went on the market, and uh, uh, the company Toma Bravo uh, preempted the process uh, and acquired us at a uh, uh, valuation that made us a unicorn. And uh, we were recognized by the PAC group as the deal of the year for 2018. That's quite an achievement. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. So you know a little bit about this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move into larger company uh, issues, if we could. Um, and it, when we were doing our, our call uh, to prepare for this appearance, we were talking in general about your background and experience. You talked about something that really resonated with me, where you start with kind of the end in mind, where mm -hmm. you're talking about integration. Because when you, when you think about um, mergers and acquisitions, depending on the, the source of your information, most deals, maybe as high as 90%, don't realize the synergies that mm -hmm. are expected or anticipated in the transaction. Talk a little bit about the synergy component and why starting with integration worked for you. Um, well, I would say I'd phrase it a little differently, is that many deals don't achieve their expected outcomes. And part of that is synergies, which tends to be cost-related, but also growth. Um, what, what I've seen is a lot of deals have a financial model. Here's where we're going to do this deal, and here's what the financial model says we have to get out of it. Um, but not having an operational plan that ties to that financial model. And so to me, that's one of the big differences of why uh, in my career and the companies I've worked with have been successful, is we actually start building our operational integration plan before we get into our diligence. So we have a thousand item checklist of things we have to go through to make sure that we know, for example, I'll, I'll pick on uh, customer acquisition strategy. So understanding who are the customers in the market. Is there an overlap of the company we're acquiring with our current customers? Um, for those customers where there is an overlap, is there going to be price pressure where those customers expect us to provide discounts because now they're getting multiple products from the same company? And so taking the things that we learn in the operational plan and folding them back into the financial model. Uh, for example, looking at things like disk synergies. Um, you know, and everybody talks about synergies. Hey, we'll be able to take this cost out, but there are also dis synergies that have to be teased out in the diligence process and baked into the plan. So, for example, health benefits. So, when companies come together, are their health benefits the same? Does one company offer something that the other one doesn't? Or what's the employee contribution percentage? And so, those things need to be baked in. Uh, another area for dis synergy is software licensing. And I'll say particularly with larger companies acquiring smaller companies, smaller companies don't have the diligence, I mentioned that diligence, they don't have the discipline of making sure that all of their software licensing is buttoned up. And so when you're right. acquiring a company, you don't want to be acquiring a problem because now there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that have to be paid, for example, to a Microsoft because that company wasn't in compliance with their licensing. And so you want to get all that stuff out of the way so that your financial model and your operational model are tied together. That way the expectations of management and expectations for investors are more easily able to be made. So, so that you, you know how you're going to get there. It's not just a number you're shooting for. Yeah, so great advice. And, and you know, planning is obviously the key in, in all of these things. But in your experience, in, in spite of all the planning, where, where can things potentially go wrong? Um, couple different areas. One is uh, customer retention, um, because companies all have a culture for how they keep their customers happy. And so uh, one of the things that gets into strategy, and I think one of the reasons why uh, companies I've worked with have been successful, is buy companies where the customer uh, experience is consistent. 
So, uh, for example, I'll pick on the education market. Uh, it's a high-touch, high-relationship market. And so uh, co companies tend to overserve that market. And so is the company you're buying over-serving or under-serving? Uh, because if you're over-serving um, over a little bit, that's good. If you're over-serving too much and part of the synergy is taking cost out to provide reasonable levels of service, uh, well, then those customers are going to feel disappointed. And so how do you prepare those? How do you prepare and start to move customers uh, into an expected service model, not, not getting way more than you pay for? Yeah. Uh, and then, and that uh, leads to attrition and customer base, leads to customer dissatisfaction, which can lead to uh, not getting the additional add-on sales that you expected. And so it's really understanding how all those things fit together uh, in your plan and then making sure that you've got a good human capital model, that people understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. Uh, because sometimes people will leave. You're not doing the right thing for the customer. I'm leaving. I'm going to go back to, uh, I'll go back to the industry that I was serving. Yeah. So you, you, you touched on the cultural aspect from mm -hmm. the customer relationship and turnover that may be attributable to yeah. uh, the company not doing the right thing for customers. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience in terms of the, the human capital component as it relates to integrating you know, two organizations with yeah. their human capital culture, so to speak? Well, I think uh, part of it is having a what is the common vision? So is the customer at the center of both companies' vision and serving the customer and doing the right thing for the customer? So with that as a basis, then you can look at then how does the company engage with the employees? So little things like getting employees up on a common email system, getting up in a common technology for collaboration, uh, whether it's a meeting system or something like Slack where people can communicate and collaborate. Uh, having man senior management be visible at remote locations. Uh, having frequent check-ins. Uh, one of the things that we found effective is a... Uh, Basically, weekly check-in with the, with the company that was acquired for the first 30 days, monthly check-in through 90 days, uh, and then doing employee engagement surveys. So we'll do an employee engagement survey one weekend. We'll do an employee engagement survey 30 days in. But it's looking at an understanding, well, what's happening, what's working, what's not working, and then quickly taking action to correct it, not waiting for a quarter to, for things to happen. But it's that, one, that you know, be there on the day of close, be there for the first week, make sure people understand what's important to them. Uh, and every deal that we've ever done, it's uh, the employees are looking at, well, what does this mean to me? Do I have my same salary? Do I have my same title? Who do I report to? Um, what are my work responsibilities? And so it's hel helping the employees understand what's in it for them to get them calm. And then one of the things that I found effective is you get the employees on board with the deal and then have the employees talk to their customers because that makes the customers happy that they're talking to that. You're going to be talking to me. You've been talking to me for five years. You're still going to be talking to me. And that keeps the customers happy. Right. Because it's all about personal relationship. At the end of the day, it's all about personal relationship. Yeah, no question. Bob Berg yeah. said it in The Go-Giver, right? People yeah. do business with people they know, like, yeah. and trust. Frank, for everybody who's watching and listening that would like to tap into your experience or just yeah. chat with you, how can they reach you? Well, they can reach me on the eLab website, website uh, which is executive. No, it's advisory-boards.org. Thank you. <laughs> uh, or on LinkedIn. I'm the, I believe I'm the only Frank Tate on LinkedIn. You are the Frank Tate yeah. on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Got it. Great. We have about five minutes to go in this segment. Uh, but I wanted to touch on, if we can, two things. First, and what happens day one after a transaction? How do you, as the buyer of an organization, prepare for day one 
in integrating everyone? Um, we actually start, uh, we use the NASA planning model. So that, okay, that, remember when, when NASA uh, sent a man to the moon, they started their plan with, we've re we're recovering the astronaut from the ocean, and they built things backwards. And so we actually start a year out. What do we expect the outcomes to be a year after the deal closes? And then we work everything back um, through the start of the transaction. So day, day one is really about the employees and about the customers. So day one is, okay, here's, here's where we're, we've announced this deal to the employees. Um, what, me, what does it mean to them? So we have HR people on site to be able to ask questions about what it means to them. Uh, we have the press releases going out. Uh, we have the customer messaging going out. Uh, we have a proactive plan with an agreed-upon script between both companies as to who's reaching out to companies of, of the acquired company, who's reaching out to the customers of the acquiring company, and then who's reaching out and how are we messaging mutual customers. Uh, and then uh, that's really what's most important. How do we deal with all the deals that are in flight? Because customers that are looking to buy, particularly in a contracted process, uh, when there's an acquisition that can uh, delay deals. And so how are we reaching out to all of those customers where there's a transaction in flight um, to make sure that they're okay and that they're going to still close that deal? Uh, how do we reach out to the key thought leaders in the industry uh, and reach out to the press so that they understand the value of this deal to the market uh, and being able to make sure that those messages are starting to get out? So it's really, a, a, again, a large multifaceted plan but it's focused around the, the employees have to feel good about themselves before they can communicate to the customers that the customers should feel good about this. Gotcha. And, it's, and it's really that cycle. Great. So that's day one after the deal. I want to rewind just a yeah. little bit in the few minutes that we have yeah. left and talk prior to acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking before we went on the air about you know, identifying a strategy yeah. and, and identifying your, your selection mm -hmm. criteria for targets. What's been your experience and how to do that in the most effective fashion? Uh, Part of it is just get out and talk to people. So um, start by surveying the industry. So I, uh, when I was at uh, Frontline, I had a group of about 700 companies that I looked at. And so I would go to industry conferences and I would talk to the CEO. And I would, and I would I'd build a database of who are they, where are they, where do they fit, when might they fit. So some companies that I would, uh, some companies I talked to and we didn't try to buy them for three years. Other companies, we tried to buy for three years and then finally bought them. But it's really about, just like uh, you said, people do business with people they trust. Companies get bought and sell to people that they trust. And it's about building a trust relationship with potential acquisition targets. So it's going out, talking to them, understanding their business, understanding what's important to them, what's important to their customers. Because the general sense that we found is that uh, founders will sell to someone more easily if they believe that their people that they've built and groomed are going to be cared for properly, that their customers that they're passionate about serving are going to be cared for properly, uh, and that they're going to get a, a fair uh, return on all the investments that they've made to build their business. Yeah. And so if you can build that relationship, then when a, a transaction, I call it, is ripe, uh, and that's really about knowing when things are ripe, and you've just got to out and talk to people. Yeah, and trust takes time yeah. to develop. Yeah. Great insights, Frank. Thanks so much for sharing today. Yeah. It's been great having you on the program. So today we've been talking about a complete mind dump from Frank Tate, who's a director and advisor at eLab. Uh, really good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Frank. Yeah. Uh, my name is Dave Bookbinder, and you've been watching or listening to Behind the Numbers. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate, and we will see you next time.
on Behind the Numbers. Take care, everybody. Thank you.